This morning, I want to start a new sermon series that focuses on how a God-ordained church should function according to 1 Timothy. So I want us to, to look there this morning. We're going to spend our time primarily there this morning. And, and I understand as we come to 1 Timothy that most of you here know that this is a pastoral letter. So let me be a little bit teachy this morning as I begin this, uh, this series. I recognize that when you come to this sometimes in your Bible studies, that you look at that and go, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Um, because it's addressed to a young elder named Timothy there at Ephesus. And so I'll read that later maybe. That's for Pastor Ronnie or Justin or, or Nate or Randy. Actually, I want you to understand something. Um, this letter is written for the entire church, including the pastors. It's written for the whole church to give the church instructions on how we are to function as a local congregation. That's why it's written. So it's important that you study it. But let me, let me introduce to you Timothy this morning, not him personally, but his letter to us by taking you to 1 Timothy 3, actually, uh, 14. And hear the, the words of the Apostle Paul here as he, he shows us in these two verses that I'm going to read God's divine purpose for this letter of instruction here that we should take to heart this morning. So listen clearly as I read 3, 14, and 15. The Apostle Paul writes here, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, this is addressed to you as well as to your pastors. You are to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's why he said he wrote this, so that we would know how we would behave, how we ought to behave as the pillar and buttress of the truth, the household of God, the church of the living God. Here, Paul is, is giving us in this book, this letter, in this verse in particular here, God's divine purpose for the instructions that we're going to read as you study the rest of this book together with me. This letter is given to us for this reason. It's important that we spend time here as a local church studying how God wants his church to function, how he wants us to behave, not just in our personal life, but in our corporate life. He's, he's telling us here, these are my ordained instructions for each of you individually and each of you pastorally to help you understand how to hold up the gospel to the world, to bear it up like the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Okay, You need to do that corporately as his witnesses. And He's, he's going to say, you can't do that with my, without my instructions, though. If you're going to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, you're going to have to find out how and I have designed for this to work so that the world would see me in what you're doing, not see you. That's what we're concerned with as a church here. And I want you to understand something. As I was thinking through this this week, I was, I was rolling around in my head some of the problems that I see in Christendom today and in many local churches today. And I truly, truly believe that most of the problems in Christendom stem from neglecting this God-ordained book of instruction. These things that are laid out here for us, they're, they're for our edification and our protection. And when we neglect these things, problems come in. And the church is wrought with problems today because I believe we've neglected God's instructions. Sadly, when I talk to some people and they're telling me that they're looking for a church, they don't even ever mention to me that they have read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus to actually find a, some sort of a guideline to go by as they go out to seek for a new church family. They've never even considered that as an option. They just want to go someplace where they feel right when they get there. When they feel comfortable, they'll decide that's where they'll stay. Many, many people are out looking for churches seeing what they can get out of them themselves, not what they can come and pour into them. So they're looking for what they can consume, not what they can actually give. And when you read this letter, you find out that you're not here to simply consume. You're here to learn how to go out 
and give the gospel. This book is about the gospel. It's about living it out according to God's instructions as his people. And I'm thankful that our church is not one of these places that I see a lot of people coming into trying to find what they can get out of the church and not being willing to pour themselves into the church. I've seen you pour yourselves into this church family, and that is encouraging. You're not here to consume. You're here to serve one another and the glory of God. And I'm thankful for that. But many of our friends that we know, they are looking for a place where they can find their perceived needs met. They're not looking for a place that's going to proclaim and uphold and live out what God commands. And that's sad. They're looking for what they can get, not what God demands of us as his people. We have a man-centered view of the church today, and we need to actually have that redirected back to God. And this letter helps us do that. And let me just give you some counsel to share with your friends that you may know that are looking for a church at this point in their life and they haven't settled in any place because they can't find a place that feels good to them. Um, Let me just say this to you to tell them. They need to stop looking for a place that feels good to them. They need to start going to a place that's teaching and living out what God has said is good for them. That's what they need to be doing. They need to be going to a place and looking for a place where they can see what God is looking for in the church lived out in the people and proclaimed in the pulpit. That's really one of the most important things that they should be looking for and asking for when they come to a church. And when, when people ask this question, they, they, they want to know, where, where should I go? What would God want me to do? What kind of church should I be in? What does God really want for his church to do? Well, God has told us, thankfully, in this letter that we're going to look at here. He shows us in First Timothy what he is looking for in his church, in a God-ordained church. The very first few lines of chapter 1, we see that. We see that laid out for us. In those very first few verses, we find out what God is looking for in his church. So let's look at just those first five verses real quickly, and then maybe I can actually try to go into some of this this morning. This will help us identify what God is looking for in his church. It begins with a salutation in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge or instruct certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, according to Paul here, if I just give you my simple outline of what I see going on is this. It's that God is looking for a church that, number one, is dedicated to his command. Verses 1 and 2, or 1 to 3, actually. He's looking for a church that is dedicated to his command. He's looking for a church that is devoted to his doctrine, verse 4. And he's looking for a church that is directed by his love. Now, I will not deceive you this morning. I am not covering all three of these. I will do well just to cover the very first one, verses 1 to 3. But I want us to have this sort of in our mind as we're looking at this text. God is looking for this in his church. A God-ordained church should reflect this, a dedication to his commands, a devotion to his doctrine, a direct line of thinking that's motivated by his love. You see, the church at Ephesus, there was one thing they finally got right at one point. They got their doctrine right. They became very crystallized on their doctrine. But later in the book of Revelation, they lost their love. So this is a call to be balanced here. God's looking for a balanced church, one that's going to hold high the doctrines of God 
and hold high the love of Christ as we live out those doctrines in the church. Okay, with that being said, let's let's go ahead and and look there in verse one and just focus a little bit of our attention, our time here on what Paul is saying in this salutation. In verse one, he says, I, Timothy, hey, it's me, Paul. That's what he's saying. Look, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior and Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, irony is here that Timothy already knew all this about Paul. So when I read stuff like this, I'm thinking, he could have just started with, hey, Timothy, it's Paul. But instead, he gives this detailed outline of who he is. And I don't believe that was for Timothy's sake. I believe that he's here identifying himself very clearly to the church and all the churches who would read this after that. Look, it's me, Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the specially sent one from Jesus coming to give you his words, speaking on his behalf as his ambassador. I'm coming to give you these commands through this letter. He goes on to say there in that passage in verse one that he's not only an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's also directed by the command of God. And this this could point to affirming the deity of Christ, which it does. But that's not his main point. What his main point is this is that, look, I am commanded by God himself to bring you this letter. I'm commanded by him as an apostle to serve the churches wherever they may be. And in this letter, I am following the instructions of my God. I am obeying his command. This is a weighty statement. And again, this the salutation, I don't think, was there just to remind Timothy, hey, Timothy, I am your authority. Timothy already knew that. He had spent many years with the Apostle Paul at this point. And when Paul left him there at Ephesus, this church, he, he fully understood all of the different distinctions about what Paul's ministry was. So I don't think he's writing this, I'm an apostle by the command of Christ or the command of God. I don't think he's writing this to emphasize his authority to Timothy, but to the church. He wants the church there at Ephesus and the church today to understand that the instructions and the commands that follow in this letter have apostolic authority behind them, and they cannot be altered. They cannot be changed. Okay, you understand that. These words that we read in this letter are to be taken as what they really are, which are the very words of Christ brought to us by his ambassador, the Apostle Paul, speaking on his behalf, writing on his behalf to the churches. And as I said, these words then cannot be altered. They cannot be softened. They cannot be deleted. And they must be proclaimed. By pastors. And I I was thinking in my mind, growing up, I grew up in the church. I mean, I remember crawling under pews when I was, what, three, four. I grew up in the church. I never heard a sermon out of the pastoral epistles. Never, not a one. Maybe heard a verse taken out of context. But never heard a sermon series out of the pastorals. That's a shame. And as a pastor today, before you, I stand here as one who is honored now to open this book before you, but I want to make sure of some things that, that, that I talk about, that they're clear in your mind. I, it's an honor for me to serve as a pastor according to the qualifying marks and instructions that we see here in the Word of God in Timothy, but I, I do want to make a distinction between the qualifying marks and the authority of a pastor versus that of an apostle. An apostle here is giving us the very words of Christ. I can't do that. I can give you the words of Christ that the apostles brought, but I don't get revelations from God, and no man today does, other than the ones that he wrote down in his word. I can't make the claim that Paul can make in my calling either. I didn't meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ on a road in Okmulgee County when I was converted. He did. 
His claim was that he was specially appointed by the command of God, by a direct revelation of God, the Son himself, when he met him on the road to Damascus. I can't make that claim. I don't have that ability. I do not have the office of that of an apostle. A pastor's office and an apostle's office are totally different. He was an apostle that served as a pastor. Yes, he was. But his office was unique to him. And his authority was also unique as well. Paul was called to be one that the Holy Spirit would inspire to bring us the divine revelations about Christ's authority and his instructions to his church. And pastors can't change it. They can't delete it. They can't soften it. This came by the Holy Spirit through his special sent messenger for the church's protection and edification. Pastors are now, though, called to serve under it. We're to serve under the authority of these instructions, just like the church. And pastors are subject to these instructions, just like the church. And there are places in Timothy that tell you, the church, how to correct us when we are in error. And we are to submit to that. But we don't have a right as pastors to add to it or to change it. We don't have the option of redefining what Paul probably meant. No, we have to preach it. We have to submit to it. The Apostle Paul's words here, as I said, are the very words of Jesus given for our instruction. And I'm I'm emphasizing this for a very important reason. I want you to understand this because when you come to 1 Timothy, let me just tell you this. You're going to meet people who like pieces of 1 Timothy. They might like a verse here and a verse there, but when you get to chapter 2 and about the distinctions between men and women and the roles that they play in the church, oh, we don't like that. That was culturally applicable to Paul, but not to us. Let's skip that part. We can't do that. We have to teach you and preach to you what these words mean. And listen, these words that we read here, as we read Timothy, and we understand that it's given to us by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by God's command, we must understand that these words are not merely the opinions of Paul. They're the words of Christ. I have have an old, old friend who probably listened to this and and call me because he pastors a church and he is absolutely convinced that he is not going to submit to opinionated Paul in every area. We don't have that option to say that the things we don't like in the pastoral epistles were just Paul's opinions. Today, when people come to the many places that are really hard in our culture and our time to accept in Timothy, They say things like this. Well, that's just Paul's cultural view at the time. It's his cultural opinion. It doesn't apply anymore today. Well, there's a problem with some of that because some of his arguments go back to Genesis. They're not cultural. They're creation-driven. They're going way beyond that culture, back way further back to the creation They're not simply his opinions. They do apply to us today. Paul's speaking, as I said, as a special sent messenger, delivering to us the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his church. The revelation of God's will, not just for that cultural time period, but for all time and for all churches, not just the church at Ephesus. These words apply to us because they come from Christ's messenger the Apostle Paul. It's important to keep that in mind because when you do come to places in this book, you're going to find there's controversy with our culture. You're going to find there's differences in the way some churches approach these texts. And I want you to be clear that these are not differences that we can overlook. We must actually teach what the text says. So let me get to my first point now. A God-ordained church 
must be dedicated to God's commands that are revealed in his word. Paul's making that, I think, abundantly clear here at the very beginning of this letter. Look in in verse 1 again, how he makes this a point, I think, saying, look, these these come not only from from me as an apostle and by the command of God, but, but look, let me tell you more about the one who's sending me. They're coming from the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. He's saying, look, the one who has sent me to give you these commands and these instructions, he is none other than the Savior of the church. He is none other than the hope that we have as Christians. Isn't that amazing? And listen, when he speaks about God, our Savior, He's talking about this tender and compassionate father that we have who sends his son to become our hope of redemption. And he's saying this, I think, in this sentence to to not only to Timothy and the church, but to us saying, look, I want you to be of great courage when you run into people who disagree with the things I'm about to say. It is our savior and our hope that is actually going to be with you in the midst of their disagreements. Don't worry. I think that would have been encouraging to Timothy here. I don't know how well you all understand what's going on with uh, Timothy here, but Timothy's in a tight spot. He's in a bad place in many ways. And I think that when Paul's pointing this out here in this very first sentence in this salutation, I think he's, he's saying, look, the one who is going to bring you these commands, who's going to direct the church, these instructions are going to come through him. He is also the one who gave his life for the church. He is your hope. He is going to sanctify the church through these instructions. He's the one who rescued the church through his sacrifice. He's not going to leave you in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of difficulty. He's going to give you instructions to guide you when you stand firmly on his word. I think he's saying, look, look, here's what you can do. You can rest assured that when all the shifting opinions come, when all the cultural compromises come, if you're standing on the words of the one who is your savior, you're going to make progress in the faith. You're going to persevere in the work that God has called you into. Now, Timothy would, would really appreciate this, not at this moment. He would appreciate it about three verses down. At this moment, he's, just, he's going, yeah. But a little bit later, he's going to go, whoa, when he thinks about this. They would have been great, encouraging words later on as he got into the letter. Because later in the letter, he finds out why Paul wrote it. Paul writes this letter to call Timothy to the ministry of correcting and rebuking other elders in a local church there at Ephesus. These elders in that church at that time were in error, many of them, and many of them were even unqualified. They had shifted away from the sure word of Christ, the gospel, the faith. And so Timothy's given the charge here later on, to go in there, and he needs to know something. Who's with me? Paul, you're not here. Hey, Paul, it's always been me and you, man. But you're not here. He says, yeah, but our God, our Savior, our hope, he's there. You have his words. That's enough. Any man with God is in the majority, right? He says it's going to be okay. And then in verse 2, Paul does something, I think, really pastoral. He's trying to prepare Timothy, and he's doing that by, in verse 1, preparing the church to understand these words are coming from Christ, not from just this letter from Paul, but an apostle of Christ. And then in verse 2, he turns to Timothy, knowing that Timothy's nature is to be one to be timid, prone to fear. And so he gives a personal pastoral word, I think, of encouragement here to him to, to build confidence in this young man, and I think it's, it's evident here that Paul's confidence in God's work in Timothy is, is something that he is rejoicing in, or he wouldn't have put him in this place and wouldn't have written him this letter. And I think that Timothy's picking up on this as he reads this. I think he's picking up on the fact that, that okay, 
Paul has some confidence that God's going to work through me, even though I don't know how it's going to happen. So in verse 2, Paul writes this, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now the word that's used for, for child here, or true child, is talking about genos. It's talking about my, the, the child that I gave birth to, so to speak, spiritually. I'm writing this to you because you're the one I know. You're like my offspring. You're like me. You're there. You're my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He gives us divine benediction over him. He knows, Timothy, you're my true and faithful son. And I trust that you're going to be able to do this by the power of God's word and the hope you have in Christ working in you. And listen, Timothy needed these these tender words from his spiritual father at this point. They were going to prepare him and and remind him later on that this this difficult ministry he's called into was ordained by God. It was blessed by his spiritual father in the faith. And he knows that when he goes through the times of difficulty, this father in the faith is going to be praying for him. This was a vote of confidence in his spiritual son in the faith. And let me just say something to you dads for just a minute here. This is a great example for you to follow. You need to learn, we need to learn as dads to point out the gifts and the talents in our children and point out what we see God doing in them, what God is working through their lives and encourage them in that saying, look, I'm confident when I ask you to go do some things, you feel like you can't do it. But listen, God is at work in you. I see these evidences of grace in your life. Son, you can do it. Daughter, you can do it. That's what Paul's doing here with him. He's he's speaking about his confidence in Timothy. He does it again. Go with me to Philippians 2. In the book of Philippians, he does this again. To me, when I see this, and it's not just these two places, when I see these little phrases that Paul uses to talk to Timothy about his relationship with him and his trust in him. It's, again, a reminder as a, as a dad how I need to be talking to my children, not only my physical children, but my spiritual children, those who are following me spiritually. We need to make sure we point out the evidences of grace in one another's lives and encourage it, especially when difficulty is on the horizon. But look what Paul says here as a vote of confidence to his spiritual son in uh, Philippians 2:19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus But you know Timothy's proven worth, his tested, valuable service. He says, you know about this. You've seen this here. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Do you think when Timothy's reading, especially later on as he's reading 1 Timothy after he faces many difficulties, do you think he would look back at words like that? Look back at the very salutation at the beginning of 1 Timothy and go, thank you, Paul, for pouring into me. Thank you, Paul, for praying for me. Thank you for discipling me. Thank you for pushing me. Because I wouldn't have went otherwise. I wouldn't have went forward an inch. Timothy needed this kind of encouragement, and so do we as Christians when we face difficulties. And here's the scary thing. You don't know when difficulties are coming. We don't know if they're on the horizon or if they're going to be a week out. So we need to be encouraging one another in the faith. We need to be directing one another to the commands of God, equipping one another in the local church, because trouble is coming, and we will all face it but we need to be prepared to know that there are people with us in it, like Paul was with Timothy here. Now, let me tell you about Timothy's work and why he needed this encouragement. His, his work at Ephesus was going to be excruciatingly difficult. He was going to stand up before older men and rebuke them to their face. 
Unless you've ever done that, you have no idea how difficult that is. And if you have done it, you know what value these instructions are in 1 Timothy. And, and when Paul's calling him into this, he's, he's, he knows Timothy's character. Timothy is identified in 2 Timothy as a timid man. He knows Timothy would be the guy who's like, That's not, my, my personality traits are, are not fitted for that kind of ministry. It's like, it's not your personality that's going to do it. It's the Holy Spirit through you. Personality aside, the Holy Spirit trumps our weakness. And he's saying to him, look, I know you can carry this out. That's why I'm giving you the task, because I know who works in you. I know who has gifted you. I was there when we laid hands upon you, and we saw the calling upon your life made evident in your life. And we see your hope in Christ like your grandmother and your mother who had that before you. We see it evidenced in your life. And I am sure that God is going to use you in spite of your weaknesses and because of your weaknesses to receive the glory for the work that you're going to do here in this difficult place. This is very important, I think, to Paul. And I think it was received very well from, from Timothy. Timothy understood how, how Paul felt about the church at Ephesus. Do we all know how Paul felt about the church at Ephesus? He spent three years, night and day, with the church at Ephesus. Pouring into them from house to house. When he left, when he departed from the church there at Ephesus in the book of Acts, Acts 20, when he left, the elders that were there and all those who gathered wept over Paul's departure. He loved this church and this church loved him. Timothy would have known that. And so he knows that when he's handed this church by Paul and Paul gives it to him, he knows how precious it is and he knows how confident then Paul must be in the power of God to work through even his weaknesses to care for them. Because there were some pretty mighty men, I think, in Acts 20 spoken of as the elders of the church. And yet these men dropped the ball. He warns them in Acts 20 that if you don't follow God's word, I'm commending you to the word of truth. If you don't follow God's word, difficult times are coming and you won't be ready. He tells them there, look. Savage wolves are going to be coming in to devour the flock. And if you're not commending yourselves to the word of truth, teaching and instructing the word of God, you're going to find there are going to be people in your congregation, in those pews, rising up eventually into leadership who are going to usurp you. They're going to take dominance over the church. And they're going to draw people away after them so that they would follow them rather than Jesus, ultimately. And that's what was happening already at this time when this letter came to Timothy. He knew these leaders were failing in their work, so he writes this letter to bring a corrective. The leaders at that church had one main duty, the same duty all pastors have in all churches for all time. That is to preach the word, expose the wolves, Feed the sheep. That's our duty as pastors then and now and forevermore until Christ comes. The great shepherd will take care of the wolves for us completely. Paul was telling the Ephesians elders when he wrote to them that they have failed if they don't commend themselves constantly to the word of God. They will not protect the church. They'll find that there'll be people in the church that rise up who will make the church more about themselves than about Christ. And that happens today all the time. Do you guys know of any celebrity pastors that make the church about them rather than Christ? I can name you some. Andy Stanley, Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick. In those circles, people almost adore them more than Jesus. They've made the church more about their consuming appetites for power and authority than exalting the Lord Jesus and giving him the praise that he deserves by caring for his people properly. That's why I think 1 Timothy is so necessary for us as a church. This could still happen, and it doesn't just happen in megachurches. You can have celebrity pastors in churches with less than 20 people. A dominating character, a charismatic leader, 
a great orator. None of those guys exist in our church, but that's the kind of people that you could have rise up. Um, But the warning here in Timothy is serious because this can happen in every church. If we do not remain dedicated to God's word by following what he says, look what he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3. If we do not remain dedicated to God's commands by remaining faithful to them, we could have people coming into the church bringing in different doctrines. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. If we don't remain dedicated to God's commands by remaining like Timothy, in the truth, and charging certain people not to teach any different doctrines, we're going to drift from the truth as a church. If we don't learn to remain, you know what the biggest problem with most pastors are? When difficult times, they don't remain. They drift. (laughs) Some run. I would imagine Timothy felt that way after receiving this letter. But he's told here to remain and guard against anything and anyone that would come into the church and distort or distract from the faith, the gospel. Look at three. Well, actually, look at verse five. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, a genuine faith, a true faith. He's not talking about a feeling at this point. He's talking about a doctrine. Timothy is charged here himself by the Apostle Paul, by God, through Paul, to stay here, remain here, and guard against anything and anyone who would distort or distract from the faith, the gospel. And when I read this, the first time I read it, just recently anyway, I came to that, ver- that, that word, remain, and I thought, that seems odd. All right, just think about it for a second. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. I mean, I can preach a whole sermon on remain, okay? Remain. You should be asking why. Why does Paul have to urge Timothy to remain? Well, if you know the context of the rest of the letter, you'll figure it out real quick. But when you first read it, remaining seems like a given. He's an elder at Ephesus. Why wouldn't he remain? Wouldn't it be natural for an elder to stay at the church that he's serving? You'd think so. But if you're going to understand the rest of the letter, you need to understand why Paul urges and commands Timothy to remain here. And for us to do that, I think we have to put ourselves in Timothy's sandals this morning for a little bit. Just remember some of the things we know about Timothy. He's young. He's in his, I'd say, early 30s at this point. That's young in ministry, guys. It's hope for some of you guys, right? Um, young, young. He's, he's placed not only as a young man in ministry, but he's placed in a very difficult ministry of correction. At this point in time, he's probably the youngest elder in that church. And he came along late. These guys were already established. He came along after. There were other guys there who were teaching ahead of him, but now their teaching had went into error. And his job from Paul, as Paul hears about this error, is to listen to the letter that he's been given, read the letter he's been given, and then go and rebuke them who are in error. This is not a fun letter to receive if you're a pastor. Anybody here like to rebuke anyone? No, nobody likes it. Pastors don't like it either. We might be better at it than some of you that, but, you know, that don't do it as often just because we have to be. But the fact is, No one likes to get this kind of instruction. I've had situations in ministry. I had a man who was here in our church at one point who was doing something on a Sunday morning that needed correction. And I went home and I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to do this. When I go to him privately, he's going to get mad. He's going to leave. He's going to say bad things about the church. And 
And, and that happens, and I, I fully am aware of that happening at times, but I was so concerned about it, I found myself kind of like Timothy here going, not me, why me? Why not somebody else? I was really looking for Nate that day because he was out flying someplace, and I'm like, oh, well, I can't pass it off to him. So I prayed and prayed, and I finally came to the point of going, God, I can't do this. You're going to have to do it. I drove to the man's house, got out, knocked on his door, and he's like, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) I'm like, oh, boy, this may not be good. He's like, come in, come in. He was excited. And so I sat down. I said, well, I need to talk to you about something I'm a little concerned about, and I need to ask you to stop. He's like, I knew you were coming for that today. I knew I'd been wrong, and I want to tell you I'm sorry. He got down and prayed with me. God is able to do what I can't do in my weakness. And yet I must be submitted to his commands and instruction for the good of the church. No matter how it makes me feel personally, as a pastor, as a person, as a Christian. And Paul's feeling, or Timothy rather, is feeling that way as he's getting this letter. He was probably really excited. The first two lines, Paul finally wrote me. All right. And then he read verse 3, and it's like somebody knocked the wind out of him. Ah, uh, you want me to do what, Paul? Remain? This place is a mess. I thought this letter was coming to get me out of here. Like, I need you at Macedonia. Come. You know, it didn't happen that way. He goes, no, I want you to stay. I want you to stay. Face the opposition. Stand firm in the faith. Preach the word. Trust the Spirit of God to do the work that you can't do in your flesh. And I guarantee you this, at least if he was a Southern Baptist, he would have thought this. The first thought that came probably to Paul or to Timothy's mind at this point was, Oh Lord, I feel feel you calling me to another church. (laughs) I don't think this is my calling, God. Paul... The Lord's calling me elsewhere. I can feel it. I guarantee you he wasn't thinking. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for this hard task. Thank you for this difficult command. Thank you for giving me this trial to bear. But he might have been thinking too, God, this is going to give evidence that only you can do this. I can't do it. Timothy was probably hoping that he could leave this place and not face the difficulties, but God had called him there. He's probably wondering, why me, Paul? I'm timid. I'm young. I'm not you. You would be good at this, Paul. But the answer that's given to Timothy here is not that he is able to do this on his own, but that God's word is able to equip the man of God for every good work, as he would write in the second letter. And there is no greater work for the man of God than that of guarding Christ's blood-bought bride. And if God is going to give you his word to equip you to do it, then you can take confidence in the fact that he is going to be with you in it. That's what Timothy is starting to feel as he's reading this letter. So back in verse 3, when Paul tells Timothy, I think, and us, why he must remain, he comes to the purpose clause in the sentence. And he says, here's the purpose that you must, here's why you must remain. It's the integrity of the church. It's the glory of Christ's bride being magnified through his word, being poured over them. This is why you must stay, because people are polluting the bride of Christ with false teaching. He says, stay, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy was to command. That word there that says charge means instruct. If you have an NASB, it's instruct. It means to command. He was to command these men who were already in the church leading. He was to command them by the authority of the Apostle Paul through God's word to stop teaching error. Well, first of all, it's difficult enough to call what they're teaching error. But then to tell them, you're out of here. If you don't stop, you're not taking the pulpit. You're not going to lead these people. 
There were certain persons, he says here, that were teaching a different doctrine. And God takes the purity of his church so seriously that he would send this letter of correction to this one church at Ephesus, knowing that there are going to be generations of Christians who need to hear this because these certain persons are going to rise up in every generation to pollute the bride of Christ, to draw men after themselves rather than point them to Jesus. He knows that there were certain persons here teaching these doctrines, distracting the true Christians from the faith that he mentions there in verse 5, the genuine faith. And the term different doctrine here is important, and it's interesting there in verse 3. Now, the phrase different doctrine could refer to something as, as blatant as outright heresy, a denial of the deity of Christ. But I think more more practically what we see happening in in Christian congregations is not that kind of different doctrine. But what also this word means is this. This word can also mean or also refer to those who would come into the church and teach the doctrines of God in a different way. A new way. A new way that's not prescribed in the scriptures. We have an example of that in the Old Testament. A couple of young men named Nadab and Abihu who thought they could help the people of God out by propping up God's directions with their own intuition, their own inspiration. And God struck them dead for bringing strange fire onto the altar that he had not prescribed. There are many today in Christendom who do this. They don't bring in outright heresy into the church. But they come into the church and teach the doctrines of God in a new way, differently than prescribed in the scriptures. They do that because they want to help prop up the Christian faith. Jesus doesn't need it. The faith doesn't need it. They think they have to do this, though, to make the faith more appealing or more culturally acceptable today. And how do they do that? Well, they come along and they shave off the hard edges of the faith. They skip over chapter 2 of Timothy. Because they don't want to confront a woman pastor. She's in the church. She's working. She's doing something. Let's just keep her there. They don't want to deal with gender distinctions, as we see later on in the book of Timothy, and call them out as being God-ordained. They shave off those edges. They they teach differently. You ever, you ever hear guys say, I'm going to... Teach you something new. If you hear that, you better run. There is nothing new, but there are some very, very foundational old truths that are to be applied in the church. Yes, we can preach them with freshness, but we can't change them. We can't soften them in a new way that scriptures don't allow. There are people that are mentioned here in uh, Timothy in verse 3 who are coming in and there are certain persons coming in teaching different doctrines. And we still have these people today in the church. And again, these are not outright heretics. They're very, very, I think, deceptive, maybe even self-deceived. They come along, again, trying like the others who shave the edges off, but they come along to try to make the, the church more impressive through their additional stipulations and restrictions They major in the minors. They come along and all of a sudden, before you know it, all these things that were minor issues to the Christian faith, how women should dress or how men should act in certain situations, they come along and say, these are essential to the Christian faith. If you do not do these things, you are not a Christian. So before you know it, they come along trying to impress people by making an outward show externally of how holy and upright we are. But before you know it, they end up with, additional works to the gospel to save you and sanctify you. They're adding works in that way to the faith. Now, real quickly, go over to 415. I'm going to try to wrap this up. In 415, I want to show you something about the faith that I keep mentioning and using synonymously with the gospel. I do that on purpose here. The doctrine that Paul's talking about in verse 5 that we just read a few minutes ago is actually identified very specifically here in 4. Let me take you to 4, actually 6. 
4.6. Notice what it says. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, this is important here. When he says this specifically, the faith in verse 6, that's what Paul is talking about in chapter 1 and verse 5. He's talking about the same thing. The faith here is he's speaking of is the only faith, the once for all delivered to the saints faith Jude 3 talks about. And, and as you study 1 Timothy, you're going to learn something about this, this phrase. You're going to learn that the word faith in 1 Timothy most usually relates to the body of doctrine that is contained in the scriptures about the work of Christ and his commands, his instructions. And in verse 6 there, what you're looking at is a definite article when you see the word the only faith, is how that should be translated. He's talking about, look, we're talking about the only faith. That is the doctrine that is being distorted by certain persons who are coming in. They're distorting the only faith. And Paul's writing to Timothy in verse 3 of chapter 1 and saying, look, they've got to be stopped. They've got to be commanded, charged to stop this. Because when you understand that the word faith here is synonymous with the gospel, you see what they're doing. They're coming in and trying to add things to the gospel, add things to God's sanctifying work through man-made traditions, the Essenes and the pre-Gnostics and the Judaizers. They're all sort of conglomerated together here and some of the things that are being taught. They're coming into the church and he's saying, this has got to be stopped. It's distorting the gospel, the faith. This faith that he's speaking of here is the revelation of God's good news about Jesus Christ that's revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation and it is given to us to edify us and instruct us as a Christian congregation. The faith is all-encompassing. His object of truth that God has given us about his nature, his work, his power, that we are to apply to our lives, to instruct us how to sanctify us, how to, how to do evangelism, how to do church ministry. It's the faith that is to guide us in this. And if it's getting distorted, once it gets distorted, everything in the church is going to be distorted. And so this has to be corrected. He's saying, look, I, when I talk to you about the faith here, Timothy, understand what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God's all-sufficient good news and instructions for his people for all time. That has to be protected, guarded. If there are people rising up in your congregation and they're not faithfully upholding the faith, it needs to be corrected immediately. They're distracting others away from the faith if you don't. And in 1 Timothy, we're told up front, that is the way a church should operate. The very first three verses tell us this. The gospel must be guarded. Not simply by the pastors. The pastors are just the, the ones who cut the path for the congregation to follow. You're the ones who have to discern it within the body. You've got to guard against anything and anyone who tries to distort or distract you from resting in Christ. In the gospel. Anyone who comes along and tries to distort and distract you from the object of truth that is revealed to us in Scripture, whether they're in this congregation or from outside this congregation, they need to be stopped. They need to be confronted. They need to be corrected. Now, in verse 3b, when he's telling Timothy to charge these people, Timothy himself is being charged. Timothy's being charged to guard the saints and the faith. As he is told to charge them to stop distorting it, he is charged to protect it. And, and understand this as I conclude. This letter, through this letter, our church and every church is also given this charge. We're given a command and we're given instructions on how and why we are to guard the truth, the gospel, the faith. And understand this. We're not just to guard against those who reject the faith from outside of us. But in particular, 
As you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll see again, we are to guard against those who would rise up in the church and distort the faith and distract the saints from living in the rest that we have in Christ. We are to guard the church against those who would come in and try to distort what we're trying to live out here corporately and personally as members of this local church family. We must guard the purity of this bride. It belongs to Jesus. Understand this. This church is not your pastor's church. It's Christ's church. We are doulos. We are slaves of Christ. And we're your servants we want to direct you and protect you, and we will do what it takes to lay down our lives to do so. But understand this, you're given a command here too. Sometimes, again, people think that these pastoral letters are only for pastors. They're not. And I want you to write something down. We've got five minutes. I want you to write something down. I want to give you an outline to help you understand your role in applying this this morning. According to, to God's instruction in 1 Timothy... We must, as a church family, study this letter so that we can do six things. There are six chapters. We've got six things to do, okay? You're to study as a church family this letter so that you can, number one, it's an outline for the book, guard against tolerating any doctrinal distractions. It's in chapter one. Guard against tolerating any doctrinal distractions. Secondly, we are to guard against losing our gender role distinctions in chapter 2. Thirdly, we are to guard against lowering pastoral qualifications, chapter 3. Number four, we are to guard against elevating external regulations. It's in chapter 4. And number five, we are to guard against ignoring congregational directions. Chapter five. Now last, we are to guard against weakening pastoral convictions. It's in chapter six. These are very important points. When you have weak pastoral convictions and a church, a congregation that ignores God's directions and elevates external regulations and loses their distinctives in their gender roles and then they'll begin to tolerate any kind of doctrine. When you slip in the leadership, the church follows. When the church is built on strong biblical leadership, the church will prosper according to the glory of God and the purposes of His will. But if we're going to Guard against these things. We as a church have to be dedicated to submitting to God's commands and the gospel in every area of our church. Understand this. Guarding the faith, guarding the gospel is a group effort. Pastors should lead us in it. But you are to follow. We are to do this together. And God has brought us together so that we can be the pillar and the buttress of the truth if we are walking in the truth. And as a church, don't we want to be the pillar and buttress of the truth to the world? He's talking about those Corinthian columns that you see on those buildings, the big giant columns that held up the temples to Diana and places like that. He's saying, look, these temples are held up by these pillars, but the glory of God and his bride is held up by the truth. And we are commissioned and commanded to hold it forth. That's our calling, not just to the pastors, to the congregation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth revealed in it. We thank you for the instructions you've given us. We ask you this morning to grant us a better grasp and understanding of the faith and discernment to look at our culture, look at the compromises that may come into the church and understand how to correct those, how to protect against those. I pray that you would protect us as a church by continually, continually bringing conviction to our hearts 
when we slip away from the truth, when we we dodge the hard issues, I pray, God, that you would, like you did with Timothy, bring this letter to our memory and tell us to remain and to charge those who teach error to stop. But, Lord, I also recognize in your word in Timothy and 2 Timothy and in Titus, you're to tell us there to do this with patience, hoping that the one that we're correcting would repent. This is not just about us pointing out the error, but it's about us pointing people to Christ and the true faith that we have and bringing them back to the church to be reconciled to you. So God, help us to recognize how to balance this, how to balance this dedication to your commands with the devotion to your love and to emulate that love in the way we carry these things out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.